Now, I hope you all had a great Independence Day celebration. Um, I did. I got to spend a lot of time uh, with family. You know, a lot of you don't know this, but uh, it was actually uh, a bit of a milestone for me. On July 2nd, five years ago, I left the job that I had for over a decade and went to seminary to become a pastor, which eventually landed me here. Um, And the reason that that's significant is uh, it kind of leads into our sermon, but I thought it was neat to share because, you know, of this, this, uh, when God calls you to something, when God moves you in a certain direction, uh, you, it's almost like you experience coming to the faith all over again. You know, it's, you experience God's uh, affirmation, you experience Support from your community, and all of a sudden, it's like God leaps off the pages of Scripture right at you. And so you could you could even say to a certain extent that when I left my old job uh, of retail, of working retail for over a decade, I was not only uh, ready and willing, but I was also enthusiastic about it. I was enthusiastic about going to this new opportunity. <laughs> you know the feeling. Did you know that the word uh, enthusiastic actually stems from a Greek word that means filled with God? I was filled with God. And so, you know, I bet most of you didn't know that. I, I certainly didn't. I just happened to run across that little factoid when I was preparing the message. But when you hear the word enthusiastic used these days, oftentimes it's synonymous with a short-term high or, or excitement that doesn't take root in long-term commitment. You know, we get enthusiastic about something, and then the next week we get enthusiastic about something completely different. And it's because we live in such a well-connected, fast-paced society, it's hard for us to hold on to the enthusiasm that we once had. And I think it's the same with our faith. Here's what I'm getting at. Sometimes we get started in our faith and everything's great, and then suddenly it's not. You know, we, we read the Bible and it seems to become less relevant to our lives, or we pray and our prayers seem to reach deaf ears, or you know, we don't have as much joy in gathering with brothers and sisters in Christ like we used to. So we pull back, we begin to rely on the old ways of doing things. We begin to uh, look a little bit like this. The next one, there we go. We look a little bit like that. And I bet you know that feeling too. But here's the question I want you to consider. What if we stopped too soon? What if we stayed the course just a little longer, if we stayed faithful to that which made us enthusiastic in the first place and stuck with it just a little bit more, maybe we would have found what it is we were looking for. So I recently read an interesting story uh, online uh, that came out at the end of June. It was actually about um, some scientists found a very large freshwater deposit under uh, the surface of the Atlantic Ocean. And what's really fascinating about it is this deposit stretches from New Jersey all the way up to Massachusetts and would cover on the surface of the land probably about a little bit more than half of the area of Lake Michigan. Um, Just think... If there are other pockets of freshwater deposits uh, somewhere else on the planet, what this could do, the potential this could have to save people who are dying of thirst around the world. You know, I, I think this ties into something that breaks my heart because as a pastor, what breaks my heart is that I think a lot of people come to church looking to grow closer to God, 
but they can't find the living water they're looking for. You know, they, they, uh, they're inspired maybe for a little bit by a sermon or an event that they come to, but then it dries up. And I think some of us here today might be in that position. And if you are, I want to encourage you that there is a whole ocean of living water right under our feet that we have no idea is there and that we don't really know yet how to get to. But if you stay the course of your faith, if you dig a little deeper, you can and you will get to that source of living water. And that's what this morning is about, is all about. It's about asking the question, how do I, how do we, how do all of us connect with God? How do we grow closer to God? And so the first thing I need you to recognize is that living in this world means that you are in spiritual danger and that a relationship with God is what your wandering and vulnerable heart needs in order to, uh, uh, what you need the most is that, relationship with God. You know, one of the battles we constantly, uh, that we constantly face in the faith is this uh, temptation to reduce our faith to mere intellectual assent to spiritual truths rather than a living relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You know, uh, I see, I think what compounds our danger is that we often deny our problems and we isolate ourselves. Uh, we, let's get that up on the screen. We deny our problems and we isolate ourselves. So oftentimes, we, we don't really think we have a problem. And so we say, we don't really need God or I don't really need other people around me that can bring me closer to God. So let me give you an example. <clears throat> Excuse me. In one of the books that I was reading to prepare for this message, there was a fictional story of a guy who was caught up in a flood. Now, uh, there was a car that came by and offered to pick him up right before the floodwaters moved in. He said, no, I'm good. I'll stay here. Well, the floodwaters came in. They got really bad. And this guy ends up trapped on the roof of his house. And he prays to God. He says, God, come and save me from this, uh, from this trial, from this problem that I'm having. And the very next day, uh, a boat comes. And the guy uh, refuses to get in the boat. And so the boat leaves. And then the waters start rising more and more. Then the very next day, a helicopter comes by and offers to pick the guy up. And the guy refuses to get on the helicopter. He tells the helicopter pilot, uh, God's going to save me. I don't need your help. God's going to save me. And so the helicopter leaves. What do you think happened next? He died. And when he got to heaven, he goes to God and he confronts God and says, God, why didn't you answer my prayer? Why didn't you save me? And God said, I tried. I sent you the car. I sent you the boat. And I sent you the helicopter. You see, on the surface, it seemed that this man wasn't in denial of his situation. But he did isolate himself from the means by which God was going to answer his prayer. He isolated himself from the people God sent to save him. He didn't receive the rescue he was asking for because he couldn't get past his own vision of how that rescue should come to be. And so it's not enough to ask for help, to ask God for help. We have to receive God's help as well. You see, it's all about our heart. And so Jesus in the Gospel of Luke talks about four conditions of the heart in a parable that I think better defines the danger that we face. Here it is in Luke chapter 8. When a great crowd gathered and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell on the path and was trampled on, and the birds of the air ate it up. 
Some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered for lack of moisture. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew with it and choked it. Some fell into good soil, and while it grew, it produced a hundredfold. Now, as usual, when Jesus tells a parable, the disciples and the people that heard it were scratching their heads saying, what exactly is he talking about this time? Well, Jesus turns to his disciples and he takes them aside and he says to them, do you want to know the secret of interpreting this parable? Do you want to know what this is all about? Here's what it means. And there's two things you need to know. First, the seed represents the word of God. Second, the different soils of the parable represent our hearts. The seed is the word of God and the different soil is our hearts. Essentially, he told them that if if they want to understand what this parable is all about, the four different soils are different hearts seeded with the gospel. But the difference is how these hearts receive what it is that God is giving to them. You know, first, Jesus talks about the seed scattered on the path. And the birds come and they scoop it up and they eat it. Now, the birds, what those represent is Satan and the forces of darkness that stand opposed to God's rule in our life. They come and they take away the seeds that have been sown on our hearts. So this path represents a heart that's hardened against God's love. The second path, that, or the second uh, soil that Jesus talks about is the seed falling on the rock, but withering quickly for lack of moisture. Now, with the rock, it represents a heart that receives God's love at first with joy, but then goes no further. Now, there's a number of reasons why it may not have gone any further, but one of the chief reasons is that it, it withered for lack of moisture. It didn't have access to that living water we talked about. And then Jesus talks about seed falling among thorns and getting choked with them. The thorns represent a heart that has grown complacent and a heart that is distracted by the worries of this life. Now, I'm willing to bet uh, quite a few of us in here may be able to identify with either the rock or the thorns this morning. But here's the good news, and I want you to hear me on this. God created each and every one of us to be like the good soil, so that as God is planting his seeds, we are growing in our faith, having a heart seeking a closer walk with God. And at our very best, we want to grow in our faith. This is what the goal of our lives are because we know we're not happy with how we are. We want to be who God has created us to be, not just content with who we are in the moment. So how do we connect with God? That's the question we have to examine. So if you want to plant God in your life and create a firm foundation centered on relationship, it's best we look at how the faithful have done this over the centuries. And fortunately, we have just such a witness at our fingertips because the Bible tells us much of what we need to know in order to have a closer walk with God. You know, back in the days of Moses, the people moved from the land of Egypt and Egyptian slavery to the wilderness. And they went to a place called Mount Sinai. And up on the mountain, God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. And these commandments acted as the basis of the law that, in their better moments, created a God-centered community. 
Now, during the same period of time, God also revealed to Moses and the Israelites the pattern for creating a place of worship where the presence of God could house himself so that the people could be among God. That's the tabernacle you're seeing right here that they, where they worship God in the wilderness. And then later when they moved to the promised land, they built the temple, uh, which was based on that same pattern. Then over time, God sent the prophets, which were spirit-filled messengers, to deliver the words of God to the people. In fact, many of the times, the prophets were sent to steer Israel back on the right path when they strayed. You know, uh, Jeremiah is a great example of one of the prophets who, at very great cost to himself, risking death and imprisonment, spoke truth to power and did his very best in a very dark period of Israel's history. And then, one of the other ways uh, during exile that uh, the people connected with God was through the synagogue. You can see kind of a picture, a cross-section of a synagogue here with all of the steps where people would sit and listen to the teaching. This is where people would gather to hear scripture and to have discussions about their faith. Uh, Sabbath observance was also important during the exile period. You know, th this was a period where there was no temple. This was a period when the people were displaced from the promised land and had to find a new way to root their faith going forward. And then after Jesus' ascension, baptism and communion became central practices of the church in order to move people closer to God. Here's a picture of an ancient baptismal pool. And what's interesting about it is you see there's there's steps going in, and then there's steps going out a different way. And this signified the change, the life-transforming change that we go through as we enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, one of the things that I noticed that was really interesting about all of these examples is that God initiated every single one of these. In other words, every single way that Christians and Jews connected with God, uh, was uh, directed by God. God either gave them the means to do it or told them how to do it. And one of the things that we're a part of is part of the Greater United Methodist Church. We're part of something called the Wesleyan tradition. And in this tradition, we call these relational pathways the means of grace. You can jot those down in your notes as well. These are the means of grace for us. So what do I mean by that? Well, we believe that God's grace is a transforming power that brings us from a place of death to a place of eternal life. But it's also the power that enables us to change and to grow our desire to become like Jesus Christ, to desire more of Jesus as we grow up spiritually. Now, to receive that grace in the first place doesn't mean that's all the grace we need. In fact, uh, our lives become a series of opportunities for receiving more and more of God's grace in ever-expanding ways. The good news is that the grace we receive from God, we receive in tangible ways, tangible ways in the world that we live in. And according to John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, there are five essential means of grace that connect us with God. Uh, those are uh, prayer, both public and private, fasting, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, searching the scripture, it's uh, gathering together as a Christian community, and it's Holy Communion. Now, when I talk about uh, Christian gathering, I'm, I'm talking about something that we would call small groups, you know, uh, gathering together in smaller groups within the larger body of the church. 
Now, if you look at the examples that I just gave you of the Israelites and of these five means of grace, you'll see that there's something very similar about them. You know, God has been consistent throughout the centuries. Think about it this way. Both Christians and Jews searched the scriptures. They did that, and that connected them with God. Both groups fasted. Both groups prayed. Both groups gathered together to encourage one another to grow in their respective faiths. And both groups had sacred meals. Now, we celebrate Holy Communion. The Jews celebrate Passover. But the bottom line is that God has been consistent throughout the ages in the ways in which he draws us closer to him through these means of grace. And do you know what the goal of these means of grace are? Nothing less than this, a transformed heart. We're called to be transformed in our hearts by these means of grace. So here's something that I think is really interesting to take stock of. Let's ask this question. What means of grace do we receive when we gather together every Sunday morning? Well, we don't fast together. Uh, we, you know, usually, I, I don't think, we don't fast together. Uh, we don't have um, small group discussions in this time together. You know, we, there's no time for those kind of interactions. Uh, and we do have Holy Communion, but that's only once a month. We search the scriptures together, and we pray together every week. So we search the scriptures together as we're doing right now in the message. But that's really, if we're being, uh, if we're being generous, that's three means of grace, but really just two on a weekly basis, and only on a weekly basis. What if I were to tell you that the only way that you can grow in your faith and in your relationship with God is to seek out each of these means of grace on a more regular basis, not just in uh, public worship, but in your private life as well. Some of you might think that maybe I'm asking a lot or, or that this seems unrealistic, but it was so important to John Wesley that he actually based the rules of what would become the Methodist church on this. And the three, rules, uh, the three general rules of Methodism are this. Do no harm, do good, and attend to the ordinances of God. Now, ordinances, don't get hung up on that word. It's a long, fancy word. Basically, it's another way of saying the means of grace. Basically, John Wesley was saying, we are to attend to the means of grace. And the idea was to work out one's own salvation. You know, God made it possible for us and it's with the power of the Holy Spirit that we live into the gift that God has given us. You know, we ask God for help because we're in spiritual danger. And this is how God answers that prayer, through the means of grace. And every single one of these means of grace is critical to our growth in the faith. We can't just do one or two of them, and we can't just do them whenever it's convenient. God's offering you the very best of himself, the means of grace, these practices, are how we receive the gift of God in our lives. They're how we connect to God. Now, let's look at the early church, because I think the early church, more than any other, provides an example that illustrates how the means of grace create a Christ-centered community. The means of grace create a Christ-centered community. One of my favorite passages in Scripture is from Acts chapter 2. It's right after Pentecost, right after the birth of the church. This is what uh, the Scripture tells us. They, meaning the uh, disciples, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. 
All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This right here is a church firing on all cylinders for God. You know, what's fascinating about this church is I think it exemplifies the good soil from Jesus' parable. This is what a fertile church looks like. And it was fertile because the people devoted themselves to the means of grace that we just talked about. They devoted themselves to, what, what did they call it? To the gospel teaching, to gathering together regularly, to sharing communion, to prayer, and to helping others in need. You know, these men and women were thirsty to grow in Jesus. And get this, they were, they were growing so much that every single day, the Lord was adding to their number those who were being saved. That's incredible. That's if we, imagine if every single one of us was so fired up for God that we went out in the world and every single day we brought somebody to Christ. That's incredible. And that's what God has called us to be. And that's how it happens is through these means of grace. But I don't want you to think that everything was smooth sailing for the early church, so that you're thinking, well, why is it so hard for us? I think oftentimes with uh, somebody that comes to the faith and they're brand new, God cuts a kind of a clear course for us. God creates space in order for us to gain enough spiritual momentum so that when we hit challenges down the road, we're able to stay the course, we're able to keep the faith. I kind of think of it as uh, a new marriage. You know, when my wife Teresa and I were ready to get married, we were very, very um, excited and hopeful for what God had done in our hearts. And getting married was a defining moment in both of our faith journeys. But, you know, it didn't stop there. I hadn't arrived in that moment. If I lived as if I did, it would be as if uh, I'd be missing out on all the richness that the marriage relationship could bring. We had to do the work of sustaining what God had put inside of us, and that meant developing and sustaining daily rhythms together with our relationship. Now, Teresa and I aren't perfect. She would agree with me on this, and we have a lot of work to do, but we're still together and we still love each other. And I think there's something to be said for that. And I think it's also the same for the church. We have to do the work of sustaining and maintaining the relationship that we have with God in Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. We grow in our relationship with God best by prioritizing the means of grace and by practicing regularly. We need to prioritize and practice regularly. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at each of the means of grace in turn and examine how we can connect with God through these means of grace. And so first up in your notes is the apostles' teaching. This is another way of saying searching the scriptures. You know, a lot of really smart people did some research and they discovered that the number one catalyst that can help you to grow in your faith is to read scripture on a daily basis. The number one catalyst. You know, Paul teaches his disciple Timothy that God uses scripture to make us like Christ and to equip us for every good work. And you know, I feel convicted that simply telling people they need to read the Bible isn't enough. It sets people up for failure. So I think the best thing that I can do is explain some of the ways how we can approach scripture. 
And so that's what I'm gonna try my best to do right now. If you're having trouble getting into scripture, the very best thing, the very best place you can start is with the Gospel of John. Read a chapter a day to keep it manageable. And then as time goes on, once you finish, read the rest of the Gospels. The reason why isn't that the rest of the Bible isn't important or won't nourish you, it will. But the heart of God, I believe, is on full display in the Gospels like no other book in Scripture. Now, another good way to get into Scripture is to download the YouVersion Bible app. Uh, how many of you have heard of this or have it? Yeah, so the YouVersion Bible app gives you a lot of different Bible reading plans that can help direct your reading if you have trouble deciding where to start. Uh, and it also has a lot of great devotionals that can focus your minds on God. But here's the most important thing. No matter what it is that you read, consistency is the key. You've gotta do it on a regular basis. Don't stress over the book you'll read. God will show up no matter what it is that you read. God will show up. But a really strong word of caution, don't just read it. Reading isn't enough. You've got to put into practice what it is that God shows you, what it is that God convicts you to do in your heart. And that's why you should always pray before you read scripture that God would help you to read it, understand it, and most importantly, apply it to your life. The second means of grace and your notes is Christian gatherings. Uh, let me tell you, nothing, 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 nothing has made as much of an impact on me in my spiritual journey as gathering together with brothers and sisters in Christ who can encourage me. Nothing. You know, there's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. We talked about that earlier, that we tend to deny that we're in spiritual danger and we isolate ourselves. Isolating yourself is the worst thing that you can possibly do. And yet so many of us are attempting to live out the Christian faith in isolation. And that's a huge disconnect from our roots because experience shows that a smaller group within the larger body of Christ is essential to our growth in the faith. In fact, it's so important that John Wesley wrote these words. This is really fascinating. He says, establish class meetings and form societies. Now, don't get hung up on that. That's just small groups. Establish small groups wherever you preach and have attentive hearers, our listeners. For wherever we have preached without doing so, the word has been like seed scattered by the wayside. Hmm, interesting. Get this, in 1776, 2.5% of religious people identified as, as Methodists. 1776. That was the second smallest religious group at the time. By 1850, less than a century later, Methodists numbered about 34% of religious people. They were the largest group, religious group, by 14%. The reason was simple. Every single Methodist was expected to be a part of a Christian gathering, a small group that met weekly. And the reason for Methodism's decline was exactly related to the fact that people weren't forming groups anymore. Now, there's typically three types of groups that you can find in any church. Affinity, informational, and transformational. Affinity groups are the easiest to get into because they have to do with hobbies and interests that we already have. So we're surrounding ourselves with people who um, in some ways think the same way that we do. Uh, but it doesn't lead to a whole lot of spiritual growth. Then there's informational-based groups. These are the most common. These are your Bible studies. These are your book studies. Um, and these lead to some growth, especially in the early stages of your faith. 
But the problem with information-based studies and groups is that it distances us from our own lives. It actually distances us from having the conversation about our lives in Christ. And it also reinforces the notion that in order to grow in the faith, in order to uh, grow spiritually, we need to accrue uh, a number of intellectual facts to have more and more of this head knowledge. Now, transformational groups are all about asking how you're doing in your relationship with Jesus Christ and about creating a space for these groups to grow in Christ together. Now, I want you to, I want you to know that I feel so deeply convicted about groups here at Christ Church that Pam Charbonneau, who's your uh, discipleship ministry leader, and I have partnered together to create structures to put in place to support and sustain the groups that we have and also to create new groups. We want to see each of you in groups because we, we know what a difference it makes in your lives. We know that it will help you to grow closer to God. We want to see you invest in one another. But we need your help. We, we need hosts who are willing to have a space in their home available for groups to meet. We need facilitators who are willing to guide the conversation when groups meet. Now, you may not be so sure about getting involved in that kind of thing, but I wanna tell you that we will train you. We will tell you how to do it. And it's really, um, it's really not that difficult. Uh, I, I learned myself years ago and found that it was actually really, really amazing. But if you're not so sure about this Christian gathering thing and you wanna kind of try it out, test it out, the best place to start is Alpha. Uh, Alpha is our premier faith essential class, and it is, uh, it's, it's information-based, but it also has transformational elements. It sets the stage for many of us to be able to move from where we are to where God is calling us to be in our faith. And nothing here at Christ Church has moved people in their faith so much as this one class. So we're actually starting in Alpha this coming fall, and we wanna just encourage you to pray over being involved in that if you haven't been a part of a Christian gathering. Now, the third means of grace in your notes is communion. John Wesley believed that every disciple should take communion as often as possible because it's a tangible sharing in Christ. You know, Jesus himself said that when we share in the bread, in the bread that is his body and then the juice that is his blood, it is a tangible sharing in his body and blood and that when Jesus, the living water, fills us, it's holy communion that is the well from which we draw that water. That's where we come to see that water of living grace. But before receiving today, we're gonna to be able to do this in a little bit actually, but before receiving, I want to encourage you to do one thing, to pray uh, and share with God where your heart is right now and ask God to empower you by his body and blood for whatever it is that God has for you this coming week. You know, that moment of preparing for communion will allow the roots of grace to sink deep for the week to come. Now, I realize that we only offer communion once a month on Sundays, but if you feel convicted that you need to take communion more often, Pastor Ryan and I uh, do a service every Wednesday from 6.45 to 7.45. Uh, that's called Wednesday Worship and Communion, and you are more than welcome to join us there as well to receive that means of grace. Now, the fourth means of grace in your notes is prayer. Now, prayer, I think, is the hardest for most people to wrap their heads around. People get hung up on prayer, and I think the reason why we get hung up on prayer is simply because it's the hardest to measure. 
It's not the hardest to understand, it's the hardest to measure. And I think a lot of people are confused about the right way to do it. Personally, I don't think there's a right or a wrong way to pray, but here's one way that might help. Take 10 minutes at the start or at the end of your day, or both actually. Take 10 minutes at the start of your day, 10 minutes at the end of your day, and be alone with God. Think of prayer as communication. You need a healthy diet balance between spoken prayer and silent prayer. We need to be able to speak and also to be silent. It's like a, any relationship you have in your life. If you're always doing 100% of the talking and the other person never speaks, it's not much of a relationship, is it? So I think it's the same with God as well. And so one of the things that can help you is to use something called the ACTS template, A-C-T-S. What you do is you start with adoration, which is essentially recognizing and thanking God for who God is. And then you move on to confession, confessing your heart to God and, and the things that aren't right in your life. And then there is um, uh, thanksgiving, which is thanking God for what God does, uh, from saving us through Jesus Christ all the way down to the food on the, our plates and the clothes on our backs. And then, of course, there's supplication, which is lifting up to God our own needs and interceding for others. Just make sure when you use Acts to leave a little bit of space at the end for silence. It's not the end-all be-all, but it is a great way to get started. And the last means of grace on your notes is giving to everyone in need and fasting. Now, you might be wondering, okay, why did you pair giving to everyone in need and fasting together? Well, one of the reasons is fasting didn't appear in the Acts 2 example I gave you. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that it was fitting that they fit together because we need to empty ourselves in order to be filled by God to serve in this world. You know, fasting is all about taking up our cross and denying ourselves every pleasure that doesn't lead to God. We can't just apply fasting to our eating habits. You know, fasting helps us to eliminate imbalances in our lives so that God will alone will be the greatest desire in our life. So ask yourself this question, what is the one thing I can't live without? If it's anything other than Jesus, that's probably exactly what you need to fast from. That's it. Something that you can't live without, whether it's TV or the internet or whatever it is, you might need to take a fast. So, fasting... Uh, also, by the way, fasting isn't a daily thing. It's something that we do as God leads us uh, because it's something we can't force. God will convict us uh, if there's an imbalance in our lives. God will show us the way in which we can make ourselves available to him. Now, as we close this morning, I want to just show you a visual that's on your notes and here, up here on the screen. Uh, this is what's called the porch, the door, and the house. And essentially what this all means is that the porch is where we go and we realize when we reach the porch that we need to repent of our sins, that we are called to move away from sin and toward God, uh, recognizing our spiritual danger. But if somebody stops here, if they don't go through the door, it's like the path from our parable earlier. It's like the seed sown on the path. The, the word of God is snatched up by Satan. But if we walk through the door, the door is faith, and the threshold is the new birth. You know, uh, you know this is where uh, we often stop. This is actually where we often make the goal of our faith is to come to faith in the first place. And that's the, the rocky 
heart that we talked about earlier. But we're called as Christian disciples to move into God's house, to move more and more of our lives into God's house and to grow in Christ. And as we do that, we, the fruit of growing in Christ is these means of grace, these practices that you see up here. And the fruit of these practices, these means of grace, is a greater growth and desire to grow in Christ. You see, these feed each other. Now, it is possible for this cycle right here to be broken. It is possible for that to be disrupted. And if that happens, uh, it's the cares of this world. It's our complacency that causes it. In other words, the thorny heart can happen here. But if we're able to stay the course, if we're able to do these means of grace, we continue growing in Christ. In fact, notice how Christian gatherings is at the center. Christian gatherings, more than anything, hold all of these other practices together because the reason is that we need the accountability. We need people who will encourage us every step of the way so that we continue to grow in our practices and in the way in which we grow in our faith. You know, if you want to grow in your faith, this right here is what it looks like. You can't just do some of these things some of the time. If you practice all of the spiritual uh, means of grace regularly, you will grow closer to God. I promise you that. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your love and grace in Jesus Christ, which never fails and never ends. You are good, God, and you are good all the time. We thank you, Lord, for your means of grace, for the ways in which you've connected with us, the ways in which you've hung out with us through all these centuries. I pray, God, that you would continue to convict us, that you would continue to move us forward as a church, to be a church that reads the scriptures, to be a church that prays, to be a church that fasts from all the things that are not right in our lives, to be a church that gathers together in faith groups, growing together, and to be a church that comes to your table knowing exactly what it is that you're giving to us, the gift of yourself, your living water to sustain us, to help us grow further in our faith. I pray, God, that each of us would grow so that we would come to your house, that we would inhabit your house, that we would live in your house in all the days to come. And we thank you, praise you, honor, and adore you, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.